0: to use this as an inspiration so rank and file members can come and see this and they can be like wow we would love to do this in our union hall
1: i would end up finding something or you know if i couldn't say well the strike started today i could start sort of in the middle of an event and then tell like the backstory or how it ended
2: this week on labor history today we find labor history at the afl-cao convention in philadelphia and the Labor Notes Conference in Chicago. Patrick Dixon and I were at both events and we were thrilled to meet so many Labor History Today listeners. So before we jump into the show, please be sure to take a moment to share Labor History Today with someone you think would enjoy it. That's how we keep this history alive and how we build the audience for the show. Thanks so much. At the AFL-CIO convention, producers Patrick Dixon and Mel Smith caught up with the Mini Archive's Ben Blake and Alan Weirdak, who were there with a special exhibit about Philadelphia's labor history. Then, at the Labor Notes Conference in Chicago, I talked to Julia Berkowitz from the Illinois Labor History Society, a name many of you will have heard in the credits for Rick Smith's Labor History in Two segments here on Labor History Today. In fact, let's get today's show started with one of them now. I'm Chris Garlock. Here's the show.
3: I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1865. That was the day that 2,000 Union soldiers marched into Galveston, Texas. With them, they carried the news that those enslaved were now free. The Confederate General Robert E. Lee had actually surrendered more than two months earlier. Why then was there a delay in delivering the news of emancipation to Texas? It might have been that there were not enough federal troops to enforce the order. It has also been speculated that freedom was postponed to allow enough time for the enslaved workforce to harvest one last crop of cotton before freedom. Whatever the reason, General Order Number 3 finally was delivered. It read, quote, the people of Texas are informed that in accordance with a proclamation of the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves. And the connection existing between them becomes that between employer and free laborer. On hearing of the news, the newly freed people celebrated. The next year they celebrated again In a holiday that became known as Juneteenth. In the years that followed, the holiday spread to other cities. But in the segregated South, black residents were often barred from holding Juneteenth events on public land. That is why in 1872, several black men in Houston purchased property and established Emancipation Park as a space to hold the celebration. In 1980, Texas became the first state to formally recognize Juneteenth. Today, this holiday is celebrated in black neighborhoods across the country with gatherings, barbecues, songs, and remembrances of the fight for freedom. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com.
2: At the AFL-CIO convention, producers Patrick Dixon and Mel Smith caught up with the Mini Archives' Ben Blake and Alan Weirdak, who were there with a special exhibit about Philadelphia's labor history.
4: So we're here at the Philadelphia Convention Center. We've got this exhibit here where labor and freedom were born. And it's specific to Philadelphia. And we've got a whole range of images and different types of historical sources relating to the labor history of Philadelphia. And Alan and Ben, you work to create this exhibit at the Mini Archives, right? Yeah. The AFL-CIO
0: reached out to us knowing that the convention was going to be here. They asked us for a... Philly specific labor timeline, and they had the concept, they had the timeline, and it was really just where the archival material from the mini archives fit within to that timeline and that narrative.
5: We coordinated with Robin Foster at the AFLCO headquarters, and she set up a spreadsheet and then we started filling in a little bit of content uh, notes. So, you know, she would know, and her team would know um what what these photos represented or what this event was. And then the uh Philadelphia Central Labor Council contributed content, AFL contributed content, and so it was kind of a, a real team effort um that put all this content together and then got it organized in a coherent way.
4: So can you can
5: you tell me a little bit about what the objective of the project
4: was? Because it's not just a history of union strikes, union movements. I mean, I, I'm looking over here and we've got Anne Preston establishes Women's Hospitals of Philadelphia. Over here, we've got W.E.B. Du Bois publishes the Philadelphia Negro. The, the, there's a, It seems uh, the exhibit is very intentional about encompassing the, the breadth of people who have lived in Philadelphia, even if they weren't involved in the labor movement in any way at all when you look at the exhibit itself below each year
0: is there's kind of a subheader so you have subheaders for labor you have a subheader for civil rights and racial justice you have a subheader for women's rights so i think one of the goals for this exhibit was to show the intersectionality or interconnectivity of struggles not just with labor and work but also the linkage with social justice
5: yeah i absolutely agree with alan and really the request Particularly to include uh, women and African Americans and how they connected with Labor and the broader struggle for social justice came from the AFL-CIO because originally we were doing just kind of union type old union history kind of thing. I shouldn't say old union history. I love old union history. You know, organ- union movements and organizations. Uh, but the AFL-CIO requested that we broaden out our search for content specifically related to gender equality and racial justice.
0: For 1935, you know, under Civil Rights and Racial Justice, we have the American Federation of Musicians, Local 274, they're chartered after African-American musicians are denied admission into Local 77. So we have this photo of Dizzy Gillespie and John Coltrane, two of my favorite musicians, and then right behind there you have this historical marker. So it's this really phenomenal blend of archival material with, you know, something like a historical marker. So the past and present, and it links music, with work, with culture, with racial justice and the struggle for civil rights. And I think that that was one of the goals is to just show how all of this is connected.
5: First, I didn't even know that. I didn't know the musicians unions were segregated initially. And the other thing that really strikes me is, you know, Disney Gillespie and John Coltrane, they didn't walk away from the union, even though the union excluded them and said, hey, we're gonna put you in this, you know, second class citizenship type local. They didn't walk away. They understood the importance of the union and and I think knew that eventually there'd be unity. And uh, that kind of vision and determination is really amazing. There's
1: a lot of history in Philly that's really well known. I was wondering what were some that were really surprising to you that you guys had not known about kind of going through the archive history? Were there, I mean, besides the one that you just shared, were there any others that really
0: Well, we're surprised until until we did this exhibit. I mean, did you know that there was a citywide general strike in Philadelphia in 1910? I didn't know that.
5: I didn't either. Ben's shrugging. Um, yeah, and a lot of the material came from uh, Walter uh Licht's research. Uh, He's probably the most knowledgeable labor historian on the working class in Philadelphia. So we kind of knew some things from him. And Alan and I went on a tour at uh, one of our conferences uh, and so we had a little bit of background, but I'll tell you, it, it's just, it, it's once you get into the history and with the power of the internet now, I mean, I'm used to doing old history or before the internet I, and I'm getting back into labor history now, it's so exciting because there's so much out there. And one of the things I found was, I didn't even know Harriet Tubman, you know, set up the Underground Railway when she uh, fled from Maryland Walked 70 miles to Philadelphia and then made Philadelphia for 10 years her home and worked mainly with the Quaker abolitionist organizations to bring 70 people into freedom. And there's a statue to Harriet Tubman here in Philadelphia. I didn't know any of that, but to see that connection with Philadelphia and see that kind of the question we talked about earlier about kind of uniting black and white people to fight racism.
1: I see, like, a lot of photos on these couple panels. Were there any archival materials that weren't photos, or were they they all know I know it's harder to represent, I guess, non-photos on the banners, but did you find anything?
0: So we have a couple of buttons. Um, so for 1969, um, Philadelphia Labor um, joined the Great boycott, and, um, and that was under Retail Clerks Union Local 1357 and uh, President Wendell Young. And so we have a couple of buttons. Um, that indicate the grapes boycott. So we have like a Don't Eat Grapes button. And these are all buttons that are in our collection. Um, also, under 1974, when Clue, uh, the Coalition of Labor Union Women, established the Philadelphia chapter. So we have a Clue button that says a woman's place is in her union. That button also comes from our collection. But a lot of these, a lot of the materials on here are photos that specifically came from our Morris Schnapper collection. And, you know, speaking in terms of process, you know, we had a timeline and a spreadsheet that we were following as best as possible. But some of our collections are organized in chronological ways. So in order to find related materials, we were just going through random chronological files and just finding things that not were just not only Philadelphia specific, but also Pennsylvania specific, New Jersey specific, and just, you know, sharing them with the AFL CIO and just seeing what can be included in this timeline. So there's also like a piecemeal component, but in terms of, you know, there's buttons here. There's posters that are included. And I think it just, it's a really good mix of just what can be done with primary sources, with archival material, whether that's a document, whether that's a button, a hat, a t-shirt, a photo, it can be put on a poster and as a part of an exhibit.
5: This is the first time we've really done a timeline type exhibit. And to me, this is a model of what can be done around union halls around the country. We're a very small group, labor archivists. This is a way to bring it down to the, to the rank and file level, the grassroots level, and start turning union halls around the country into kind of museums about the history of the union. And uh, what we're hoping with this exhibit is it goes to the Philadelphia Central Labor Council and they put it on exhibit and maybe travel it around because it's in, in roll-up banners, so it's easy to ship And it's all digital, so we can just send digital files out. You know, Alan was saying, uh, someone came up to our booth and said, I wanna do this exact thing for our- And that's
0: it, you know, and building building on exactly that, I mean, this is, you know, beyond how this exhibit will travel, we wanna use this as an inspiration so rank and file members can come and see this and they can be like, wow, we would love to do this in our union hall. And it's at the local level, at the state level, at, you know, every level this can be done it doesn't have to just be at the AFL-CIO convention it can be anywhere and we just hope that workers at every level can see this and want this for their union and that expands labor history that gives us more of a chance to tell the history of working people
1: and what do you think the like the benefit of having these in union halls or what do you think like a a good goal for having these would be
0: i think it it so Workers, workers who may be new to their union, workers who may be reluctant to engage, can see themselves in their past. They can see themselves in labor history and they can use that to build a better future for working people.
5: Years ago, Kohler Company in in Wisconsin, their local was coming up for uh, negotiations. They were going to be tough. The company was asking for a whole bunch of uh, concessions. And, and they decided, well, what can we do to get the rank and file enthusiastic about these and mobilize to defend their pensions and benefits and wages? And what they did was they came up with the ideas, oh, we're gonna turn our union hall into kind of like a museum about the history of the local because that local you know, had tremendous struggles to form the union. It's a, basically out of a company town. And so they created this exhibit. Well, as a result, it did mobilize the rank and file. The company took note and they backed off on the concessions. So their lives not only are intellectually better with the knowing about the union, but concrete benefits were defended. And like the union hall became like a tourist, not almost a tourist attraction of the families of the locals who would bring generations of, in their family, of grandpa, you know, grandma and mom and dad you know, worked in the factory. So they would come and look for them in the pictures, like, you know, so that's the kind of thing uh, we want to spread. The other thing here in Philadelphia, the Carpenters Union um, has done a single organizer for the Carpenters, actually, and a retired local president. They started rummaging around because they want to do a little museum at their apprenticeship training program. It's for all of Northeast Mid-Atlantic regions, huge training center right here, a few blocks away. And they, they created on their own, in their spare time, this incredible museum. And they got the word out to the rank and file and people started bringing all kinds of stuff in. One family brought in a, a carpenter's workbench from the 1790s that had been in their family all those generations of carpenters. And in this search, they discovered that the uh, 10 to 10 banner on the 10 hour day they found it. I think it was under a stage in a storage area somewhere. Been there for probably decades. That banner was painted in 1835 for the general's first general strike in the United. It's on, on our timeline here. First general strike in America for the ten-hour day and was successful. And they uh, we have the carpenter's collection, so they donated it to Maryland. We had it all, um, you know, preserved and everything restored. And it was at their convention a few years back, and and then it was at our, the opening of our exhibit. And really what I'm thinking, it's in storage now, is bring it out of storage and give it to the carpenters here so they can put it in their museum. They have reproduction in their museum, but I'm thinking the original needs to be with them. It needs to be because it's so powerful. It's two apprentices, uh, carpenters apprentices, and one of them's pointing to the clock saying, hey, buddy, it's time to, you know, clock. Well, they didn't have clocks or, Punching out, but it's time to stop working. You know, we're for the, we're, we got to enforce the ten-hour day, and um, it's kind of a wonderful story because who knows what's out there? We know it's like a massive amount of material. All these different local unions, and once these projects hopefully get started, and with the podcast promoting it, uh, Labor History Today podcast and the network, uh, the potential is almost unlimited because this is something we can't do. We don't have the resources. There's just a handful of labor archivists around the United States, a handful of of labor archives. We can kind of do the national records, but beyond that, we can't do a whole lot. And some local records. We want to encourage at the local level, you know, create a a little mini archives, a labor library, and an exhibit in your union hall. And this came out of the 30s, too. Walter Ruther's home local uh, in the auto workers, uh, 174, had 40,000. Volumes in their local union library in their union hall, like in the 1930s. And that's the kind of thing that really helps build the movement. Because as we know, all the bookstores now, you know, there are hardly any left, and most of them have no labor section. Like politics and pros in DC, I was looking for the labor. They didn't, they just unionize, but there's no labor section. You know, it used to be back in the day, you know, all kinds of stores had labor sections. So now we got to build that through, uh, in the actual union halls themselves.
4: I just have one more. The 1970s appears to have been quite an interesting decade in Philadelphia labor history. Norman Rayford, an organizer for the nursing home employees local, is killed while organizing an industrial laundry of workers in North Philly. Then 1973, there's a month-long teacher's strike. Then there's a large-scale public sector employees strike in 1975. And as I'm saying this, Alan's pointing out to me that in 1970, the Pennsylvania Public Employees Relations Act becomes
5: law.
0: Right. So in in 1970, you have tens of thousand Pennsylvania public employees now joining unions after the Pennsylvania Public Employee Relations Act becomes law. And then five years later, you have the the city's first large-scale public employee strike. Um, You know, I mean, so... I think they kind of work in tandem. And what's interesting to me as, you know, somebody, as I I study a bit of labor in the 1970s and labor in the 1970s is largely kind of seen as a rather dormant decade compared to the 1960s. And I think that this timeline really challenges that and how when you examine labor at the more local level, you see how much happened, not just in the 1970s, but it gives you an idea of how much happens at the local level outside of national narratives.
5: This panel is a great example of collaboration. How by collaborating with, in our case, uh, the Philadelphia central labor council and the national AFL-CIO, it makes it a much more powerful exhibit. I never heard of Norman Rayford. I'd never heard of him and being killed as an organizer. I
0: think, especially when you, you know, thinking about this, the teacher strike in 1973, you know, I think a lot of this raises additional questions, because I think, as we know, strikes and struggles seldom exist in a vacuum. They're seldom, you know, isolated in within a year, within a month. So what was the energy leading up to this month long strike in 1973? Was Philadelphia the only place where teachers were mobilizing to strike in 1973? What happened? Where else did it happen? Where was it successful? Where did it fail and what can we learn? And I think when you look at an exhibit like this, it raises those kinds of questions. So somebody who may not even be from Philadelphia, somebody who may not even be from the Northeast can look at this from a more chronological perspective, and they can think locally. And that can give them ideas on not just how to examine their union's history, but also how to preserve it, how to share it with not just their union members, but with the broader public. Thanks, guys.
2: At the Labor Notes Conference in Chicago, I talked to Julia Berkowitz from the Illinois Labor History Society, a name many of you will have heard in the credits for Rick Smith's Labor History in Two segments here on Labor History Today. All right, so uh, just uh, tell me your name.
1: Hi, so I'm Julia Berkowitz.
2: And you're with?
1: The Illinois Labor History Society.
2: Okay, great. And we've been uh, neighbors here at the Labor Notes Conference for a couple of days. And, That's and, right oh,
1: and you've been very polite in, in, in listening to me blather on to all the people who stop by our table.
2: No, it's been fun and you've been listening to us, you know, do all, interview all these folks so That's you've been very right. polite. Uh, been but we wanted to talk to you for a couple of reasons. One is uh, you know I know that Rick Smith uh, connected up with you and does uh, labor history and two um, and that a, a lot of our listeners know those because we use those in a bunch of our different podcasts. So we wanted to talk to you. Uh, about how that happened, because I don't know. But I know that you've been writing uh, for those, so well, let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, sure. Because one of the reasons we we love Rick Smithing is is that they're they're such a tight two minutes. Right. How does he do that?
1: Sure. That's a great question. Uh, okay. So. Um I got on the board of the Illinois Labor History Society in 2015. At that time we had a director named Stephanie Sewell-Fortado who is now teaching in the labor education program at University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana. I don't know what the connection was, but I think she was the one who set up the three year project with Rick and the Rick Smith Show. So. What was created was a uh, daily two-minute podcast for the years 2015, 2016, and 2017. Um, She and another woman wrote the bulk of 2015 and 2016. And then I took over beginning of December of 2016 and wrote until the end, which was 2017. So... It was a three-year project. What people hear now are reruns of those three daily prod- podcasts. So we have three, three podcasts for each day. I don't know what Stephanie's process was, but I know that the way that I structured it, I had the understanding that it had to be between 275 and 290 words and That's a really tight window it's a very tight window uh every word it really has to count i mean there's can't be any filler you've got to really minimize the articles you know you really uh and it's very much who what when where let me do you just, know what i mean yeah, and yeah let me just sort of back ahead. up i'm, I'm curious okay,
2: about the pro- no 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 you're fine um about the pro- as you're talking I'm sort of realizing you know that the process so you start up I mean the, the 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 thing that so impressed me about this is something because I inc- I do labor history of course. Uh, as part of a daily podcast that, mm-hmm. that I do and and it's just been really tough for me because you take something like you know any random historical strike right. and when you're trying to boil it down you just have to leave out so much right I know. and so what I've always been impressed when I've been you know using the labor history in two is what a wonderful. I mean, somehow you really, even though I, even though I, I know you're leaving out a lot, right? You you'd really capture the essence of it, and that's, I'm, t- I'm curious about the process. How do you do? Because clearly, and we're gonna come to more about the historical society. Because clearly, y'all really know your history, but to have people who know the history as well as you do, who then boil it down, that's a very interesting. And so I want to know how you do that.
1: Sure, sure. So. Uh, Let's see how okay. that
2: historical sausage is made.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I can only speak for what That's my process fine. was. That's fine. Believe me, this was a real education experience. I mean, this was like a crash course for me in terms of content, in terms of research, how to even just establishing research guidelines for myself. Sure. Uh, sharpening my writing. Whew. Wow. I mean, talk about mother of invention, you know, mother necessity of mother of invention. But um, so what I would do, this is what I would do. Rick had to have them in, I think, Monday morning. I don't remember. His schedule would change. Anyway, what I would do, I would wake up on Sunday morning and I would go through. There's a lot of websites, you probably know this, there's a oh, yeah. lot of websites that have calendars. Right. I must have had like, 15 different websites in my browser open like okay what's this one say okay what do they got for this date What do they got this you know and i'd be going through all the browsers uh for all the websites to see if anybody had had anything then of course i had to say well did we already write about this
2: (laughs) and been there done that you know
1: 30 or 40 percent of the time we had already written about it so now i'm like well now what do i do so then i really did start to look at uh the press of old leftist organizations like the Daily Worker, like the militant from the 30s and the 40s and the 50s to try and, because this, I mean, whatever you think about the left or socialism, et cetera, it's a documentary history of the working class on a lot of levels. And so you see, like, I mean, it's amazing, really, and very much an underutilized resource as far as I'm concerned because of the bias politically that people just do not use it or take it seriously and they really should because there's a lot of good writing but there's also regardless of what you where you are ideologically it documents the history um, which is hard to find for the working class right and so I I drew upon those sources I also uh, had a subscription to newspapers.com I would really just get really creative with the search bubble okay what kind of articles come up over the last 100 years about, you know, steal, strike, uh, police. You know, I try to be creative with the, the words that I use to see what would come up. And through all of that, I would end up finding something. Or, you know, if I couldn't say, well, the strike started today, I could start sort of in the middle of an event and then tell the, like the backstory story or how it ended. Do you know what I mean?
2: I do. But here's my question yeah. for you, because when I have done that, right, done that dive, and it's right. it's really hard because you get into it. And it's just and especially if you're into this, you know, labor history, as obviously you are. Right. I mean, it's, you just go deeper and deeper. It's right. peeling the onion that right. never ends. Right? right. And so you wind up with all of this. You know, just pick you know, some random steel strike of 1944. I'm just making this up, right? Sure. So you end up with all of this stuff, right? But how do you? So Compress once you it. do that, how do? But how do you know which? You know what that strike is about? Because oftentimes there are different ideas, right, about what the strike was about or what the issues were. So so how do you decide that? How do you?
1: That's a great question. At a certain point, I just had to. So this is what I had to do. Okay. I had to just be like, okay, I work for a living. Uh, I can't. I have to. I have to make choices. I can't, you know, do this for the next, you know, 48 hours, and then you know, drink a lot of coffee and then sleep for three days <laughs> like a grad student. You know, I have to, right. you know, get up at 4:30 tomorrow morning and go to work. Right. So I would have to make certain decisions, like okay, and I would. I literally at a certain point I had a timer. So what I would do is I would. I would look. I would say, okay, I'm going to spend uh 45 minutes looking at the websites figuring out what I'm going to what the what the topic is what Got the event it. is going to be it. okay then I did it in 7 day blocks so literally I was I would spend Sunday would be like the day that I wrote for like 10 hours it oh was my God. yeah it was crazy oh I don't God. know I think about it now and I'm like I don't even know how I did this <laughs> I must have been crazy um or driven or possessed I don't know whatever so then I would say okay Sunday I'm going to spend an hour researching this. Okay. And then I'd, I'd go through the newspapers. I'd do books.google.com and do search for words and see whose uh, stuff I could access. I would look on... I had a subscription to JSTOR. I'd look at that stuff. Okay. i spend an hour. Okay. Whatever you got, you got to go with that. I Done. See. Period. End of story. Okay. And then I would spend, okay, 45 minutes... I got to write it, and I just, who, what, when, where, and why, what are the, you know, look at the, try and construct in my head a narrative, and then say, what are the main thematic points that I want to get across to the listener? I can't tell them the beginning and the end and the in-betweens and all the drama and all the details that would make for a 300-page book. Right. Right. You know, but what do I want, which they won't remember ten minutes after they stop listening anyway, what are the main points that I want them to come away with the lessons that I want them to come away and so I just would boil it down to like, okay well, these are the lessons coming out of this event, and so I'll attach you know relevant facts to that, and that was it that's it.
2: did you find as as you got into them <laughs> that uh that it be, I mean, as it as you as you, got, I mean, you must have sort of got it down after a while. I'm thinking that that it became you sort of got the flow of it. It got easier over yeah. time. It
1: took probably about seven months for wow. me to get. Yeah, it wow. took about seven months to finally get into that flow. You know where. And
2: I assume that you would voice them once you sort of got to a certain point to see how the words actually fit together. And yeah, yeah.
1: I would try, but I mean. On a certain level, it, it can still be problematic because I can say to myself, oh, well, this sounds great because this is how I think and it makes sense to sure, me, sure, sure. right? And that only goes so far. I know sometimes I felt like Rick was being very polite, but maybe it was a little too academic or uh, I don't know how to describe it. Like, There's writing that is done for the written publication, and then there's writing done for somebody who tries to sound like they're not reading. Right. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. They're very different. Right. And so I had to really struggle with my natural inclination to just, like, write a grad school paper. Do you know what I mean? I do. In that style. And try and say, okay, if I were... And it was hard to sort of be in Rick's head and pretend like I understood what he was looking for and needing to put it in his own uh, way of expression. Do you know what I mean?
2: I did. And did he do any editing? You know, once he got no. them, or pretty much he just I read was them. Really Interesting. Stunned. Wow. Like he
1: was uh, everything is word for word. Really? No kidding. Yeah. I I was actually impressed because I thought he would. I, you know, I'm just sort of like, okay, you know, once it's out in the ether, I have no control over it. He's gonna do whatever he wants to do it, and he.
2: And did you have any background in in radio or writing for radio? This was
1: no. So I, I mean, I well, not like that. I mean, I did a world music show when I was in college, but that's about it. So, but that's got nothing to do with like written word or spoken word
2: but maybe maybe Um, it developed your ear a little bit do you think no maybe not not (laughs) no no relation (laughs) for interview maybe for (laughs) for
1: world music but um no i uh no i mean i was a you know i was a college dropout i went through an apprenticeship program i'm an electrician by trade i went back to school and then grad school while i was working full time over the course of several years and just kind of drug, juggling everything, but um, I mean, nobody seemed to complain, so I just kept no. doing what you know. Until somebody stops me, I'm just gonna.
2: Well, they're terrific. You know I mean, mean, really, they're, they're I'm absolutely wonderful. i you enjoy wonderful. them. I'm glad no, somebody I, gets some use and out I'm, of I'm them. I'm tough. Let me tell you, I'm a tough really? audience. Okay, oh yeah, no, no, I'm a writer. Enough. I do radio, and they're okay. they're really they're wonderful Whoa. gems. Okay, and I appreciate that. I'm, I'm so that. glad that they're that they're here. And that, that the thing that's wonderful about them is not only they're great, but they're evergreen. They will always be great. Well, so. I appreciate
1: that. Thank you. Some of them, you know, some of them need to be a little fine-tuned because they were written in the moment. Like, sure. there's some stuff, like, there's some, you know, like, when I'm rerunning it, I notice, like, okay, at some point we've got to re-record this and update it because it's, like, very much in relation to, like, a Trump administration policy that got is, it. like, no got longer it. an issue. Do you know right. what I mean? Or, well, last year this happened. Well, no, that was seven years ago. You know, it's so, a... And like little things like that that need to be edited, but
2: Julia Berkowitz, thanks so much for giving us some time. It's been a very long day, but we really appreciate uh, you spending some time with the Labor History Today podcast.
1: Well, thank you for giving me this opportunity to speak to you about the work that we do at the Illinois Labor History Society. I'm Rick
3: Smith, and this is Labor History in Two this day in labor history, the year was 1937. That was the day that would go down in labor history as the Woman's Day Massacre. The Steel Workers Organizing Committee were attempting to bring union recognition to the steel industry. Earlier that year, U.S. Steel had agreed to recognize the union, but smaller steel companies, including Republic and Bethlehem, refused. Republic even went so far as to fire 1,000 union supporters from plants in Canton and Maslin, Ohio. Outraged, the union voted to go on strike against Republic. In Youngstown, strike organizers came up with an idea to bolster solidarity for the strike. They would set a day for women to walk the picket lines. Wives could show their support for their striking husbands by taking part in the pickets. Youngstown police chief Charlie Richmond did not like the idea of women picketers. He demanded the women leave. When they refused, he ordered tear gas fired on the women and their children, who were also present at the picket. One woman was carrying an infant. As out Enraged union members rushed to the scene Police opened fire on the crowd One union organizer described the scene Saying, when I got there I thought the great war had started over again Gas was flying all over the place And shots flying And flares going up And it was the first time I had ever seen Anything like it in my life Despite the violence, the union members regrouped And attempted to confront the police Once again. More shots were fired The next day, Ohio's governor Ordered more than 5,000 National Guard to Youngstown. Pickets were limited to 10 people per gate. Republic fired many of the union leaders. The Woman's Day Massacre was just one instance of the anti-union violence faced by steelworkers in their fight for dignity. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two.
2: That's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. I hope you enjoyed it. And if so, please be sure to take a moment to share it with someone you think would also enjoy Labor History Today. It's how we keep this history alive. It's how we build the audience for the show. Thanks so much. Thanks, as always, to Labor History in Two, a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show, which we just found out more about. That's a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. We'll hear more about the Illinois Labor History Society in a future episode. Music today was a little bit of John Coltrane playing Up Against the Wall at the Showboat in Philadelphia. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Councils Union City Radio, and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben, Blake, Patrick, Dixon, Leon, Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pauczak, and Alan Weirdak for labor history today back from the road but still going strong this has been chris garlock thanks so much for listening keep making history and see you next time